This is the sound of me trying not to wake up four other people. And this is the sound of me doing a very bad job at trying not to wake up four other people. This has become a routine for me. Every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I wake up at 6.30 so I can get dressed, eat breakfast, and make it to the science and engineering library in time for my 8 o'clock Zoom class. My four roommates and I have been living together for about five weeks now, and I still don't have a good read on everyone's schedule. Most of the time, our routines vary on a day-to-day -day basis, but there are, of course, trends. Here, I'm about to step back into my room because I forgot a book for one of my classes. In the meantime, let's take a look around. The first thing you notice about our quintuple room is how freaking big it is. It is enormous, maybe twice or three times the size of an average double. Every quintuple has been converted from a lounge space or common area, so it makes sense, really. In my room, there's two standalone beds, a bunk bed, and a loft. Every bed has a desk and a wardrobe, either right next to it or in some other vacant space in the room. Everybody's asleep right now. But Sam, who got the loft, can often be found seated in front of his computer well into the wee hours of the morning and passed out in his bed at various intervals during the day. Godfrey, who got the top bunk, is closing cabinet doors a little too loudly a couple early mornings every week. Mason, underneath him, is in bed and giggling to a TV show by 7pm most nights. Nate, in the single closest to the door, is at his desk watching sports during the day and in his bed watching sports at night. There's no distinctive timing, but there's usually sports. Or anime. Or engineering homework, I guess. Alright, I'm on my way to the dining hall. Let's check back in a bit later. It shouldn't surprise you to know that I was actually very nervous about living in a quintuple room. A few days before move-in day, I talked to a stranger at a party who told me that a friend of his had lived in a quintuple at some college in LA. Two of their roommates had gotten in an argument, and unbeknownst to everybody else, one of them had a taser. Apparently, you can barf if you're tased hard enough. I didn't know that. Anyway, that story was worrying, but perhaps even more worrying were the reactions of everybody else. Most people took the news that I'd be living in a room with four other guys with a shake of their head and a holy cow, man, I'm so sorry. Others expressed disbelief that a college would even do that to its students, as if quintuple rooms were just the latest sad installment in the systemic extortion of American college students. You're paying that much for a room with four other guys? Are they crazy? Are you crazy? Well, I can't say for sure whether I'm crazy or not, but I, I can speak to that first question. And the answer is complicated. This is What the Heck is the Deal with These Quintuple Rooms, the first part of a two-part series about one of UCSC's more interesting housing decisions. My name is Kyle Keller, and you're listening to the UCSC Slugcast, brought to you by the Division of Student Affairs and Success. Part 1 The Decision To get a real bead on why the decision to start including quintuples was made, I decided that I needed to go straight to the top. 
Hi, everybody. My name is Dave Keller. I use he, him pronouns. I'm the executive director for housing services at UC Santa Cruz. Dave and I have chatted before. In 2020, we sat down to discuss the UCSC Camper Park, which, much like quintuple rooms, presents a small side of an enormous problem. What you hear next, well, it probably won't surprise you. Um, I've worked in uh, student housing in many different parts of the country over the years and in many different you know, cities and towns and rural areas. I've never seen a housing market as bad as the one in Santa Cruz. The vacancy rate in the greater Santa Cruz area is less than 1%, and that's an extremely unhealthy housing market. But it's more than just Santa Cruz being bad for housing. The current situation is uniquely awful. What we're feeling right now is probably the worst I've seen because the latest squeeze was the relocation of people who lost their homes in the mountains during the CZU Lightning Complex fire. You probably remember that destroyed over 900, well, well over 1,000 buildings, but over 900 homes. And many of those folks um, you know, had to move into town to find housing. Then again, according to Dave, the conversion of lounge spaces to living spaces, well... That's been going on for a long time. That was not a unique response to the particularly challenging year that we're having this year. Really, it happened in what Dave called a slow evolution over seven to eight years, where housing services would take a look at what they had to work with each academic year and densify accordingly. Speaking of which, densify, that's a word you're going to hear a lot throughout this episode. It refers to the university's efforts to house more students without having to construct more housing. In other words, making more thorough use of what they already have. And densification doesn't just extend to quintuples. Here's a fun fact. Quintuples are not actually the highest capacity residence hall housing option at UCSC. There are also some hextuples. Six people. I'm also talking about the housing option that the university focused on when it started densifying, and the housing option that is currently the most common option on campus, the triple room. The first sort of first wave was there's a lot of um, double rooms that were just architecturally uniquely big. Maybe they're on a corner or they sit in an architectural configuration within the building where they had just more space than the normal doubles and we converted those. After housing services had wrung every extra bed they could out of the larger doubles, they began to look elsewhere. And that's where the quintuples, and hextuples too, I guess, came in. The lounges came along a bit later. Um, once, once, we'd, once we had identified all the residential, you know, built space, the rooms that could be converted, and we still needed more, we slowly started taking lounges offline. Of course, densification isn't the only thing the university is doing to address the housing problem. In our interview, Dave used a term that I really like, parallel pathing. As we've established, UCSC is currently densifying, making better use of what it already has. That's one path. Meanwhile, the university realizes that this path is very finite and also very dangerous. Every step has a quality of life cost. The more students you're packing in, the more suffocated and claustrophobic those students tend to feel. So eventually, they decide that they have to buck up and build new housing. That's path number two. As new housing comes online, the university is able to rewind some of their steps down the first path until they've both repealed all the tougher decisions and constructed enough new housing to balance out the deficit. Then, both processes can stop, theoretically. 
though considering the fact that UCSC's enrollment quota keeps going up every year, who knows if things will stay stopped for very long. At the moment, UCSC is pretty far down that dangerous first path, but their progress on the second is picking up speed. In 2021, the UC Board of Regents approved the administration's proposal for Student Housing West, a large-scale construction project that will result in both new housing at the intersection of Hager and Coolidge Roads and higher capacity, better housing for students with families. Student Housing West is big and visionary and, and will be transformative for the campus, and that's intentional. It, it is meant to be a great big solution to a great big problem. If you think about our current situation and then picture having 3,000 additional beds available, that's a game changer. When I asked Dave when he thought Student Housing West would make it possible for housing services to roll back some of the densification decisions they've made, he said he wasn't sure, but it wouldn't be years and years. If we were already in process and you want to know when it was going to open, I could tell you because we have sequenced construction documents that bring it on in phases. I know exactly how long it will take to build it. Mm -hmm. uh, well, exactly. You know, I, I have a very good idea of how long it will take, barring any problems. Um, that That's the kind of thing I can answer. But when, it, when it's in the hands of the courts, it's, it's just it would be speculation. Dave also clarified that Student Housing West would only result in some of the densification processes being repealed. Others, ones that have a high bed yield and a low quality of life cost, would be kept in place. The, the triples have met a big have, have met a big need, right? They've provided us with the housing that we need for students. They're also very popular with many students because they're the lowest priced option, right? Students, everyone wants to save money where they can in their education, and triples are our least expensive room type. So they'll never go away completely, partly because of demand. I think that's just an important thing to note. First goal, of course, would be to return the lounges to use as lounges. But it's, it's at that point, right? It's, we have to build and we have to bring online a significant number of those new beds before we can start doing the de-densification, if that's a word. Okay. This episode, I've talked plenty about the housing crisis, how the decision to convert lounges into quintuples was made, and when things might be rolled back. But I haven't really gone into what it's like to be an administrator and get criticized for all these decisions. You know, it's never fun to be criticized, but end of the day, I'd do it again. Or what it's like to be a student living in one of these quintuples. People in like triples and doubles, they just seem a little sad all the time. <laughs> for all that and more, stay tuned for the second episode in this two-part series, which should be coming out shortly after this one. I'll see you then. Kyle, out. Once again, this episode was produced by Kyle Keller for the UCSC Slugcast, which is brought to you by the Division of Student Affairs and Success. A special and massive thank you to Dave Keller for yet again proving to be a transformational source of information and an all-around great guy to work with.